The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to another edition of The Wizard Files, the special podcast interview series where we go behind the scenes with former staff members of Wizard Magazine and the comic book professionals associated with the books that filled its pages. This time around, we're talking to a real Wild West wordslinger who, in addition to writing many extended universe novels for uh, properties like Angel, also knew a thing or two about whipping up a wild storm of adventure. Working with Jim Lee as the vice president of marketing at his Image Comics imprint, but also penning many of the top titles at certain times. He also went on to become the first editor-in-chief of IDW Publishing and many, many other achievements. So let's not waste any more time in welcoming Jeff Marriott to the show. How you doing? Good. Thanks. Thanks. How you doing? Excellent. Well, you know, we've been talking to you a lot on social media, right? Yeah. We've been <laughs> getting the comments from you, little inside tidbits. And we said, we got to have a full conversation. Absolutely. Now, let's just kind of go back to the beginning here, because you are a storyteller for sure. So were comic books your entry point into becoming such a, a lover of creating stories as a child? Or was there another medium that got your imagination oh. going? It was a combination of TV and comics initially. I was a little kid in the late 50s, early 60s, and I loved like Roy Rogers and Hopalong Cassidy and those guys on TV. Then when I was six, my parents moved to France and there was no American TV. And I was like, man, this is hard. But then I was in a barber's office. It was a, a Russian barber who had an <laughs> office in a U.S. Department of Defense leased building in Paris, France. I'm sure he was not a spy or anything, right? Um, <laughs> But he's, that's where all the people who worked in this building got their haircut and their kids did apparently as well. So I'm sitting in there one day and there's a Roy Rogers comic book on his little table with his magazines. And I picked it up and I just like, that's the first comic book I couldn't remember holding in my hands. So maybe six and a half, seven years old, my first comic. Wow. Um, and obviously a Western comic. And, and you can see that that sort of had a, a strong influence on me. So, Absolutely. Now, let me ask you this, just while we're on the topic. Roy Rogers, Hopalong Cassidy. Always Roy? I was a bigger Roy fan, but I have a picture of myself at like four or five wearing a Hopalong Cassidy outfit. <laughs> and I, I don't think I ever owned a Roy Rogers outfit. So so I guess I could swing both ways. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. My, uh, my dad, back in the day, he entered a Cheerios contest where you had to write a poem about the Lone Ranger and he won a full Lone Ranger outfit with you know, the guns oh, awesome. and everything. Yeah. <laughs> that's great though. That, yeah. That, I that love was... the Lone Ranger too. Yeah. But, but let's talk about this then. So I, was it always Western comics or did you find yourself drifted into the world of superheroes as the years went on? Did you keep reading comics or did that come later come back into your life i kept reading comics not as religiously once i got back to the states and there were other forms of entertainment that, that could occupy my time but then the batman tv series came along in 66 we came back in 65 i guess so it wasn't that long i hadn't been back that long the batman tv series came along and i immediately was subscribed to detective comics the only comic i've ever subscribed to in the mail the old-fashioned way used to come folded over and tucked into a brown wrapper 
from yeah. there, it just never, it never ended. Let's flash forward then. So, you, you know, you're reading, you're checking it out there. What was your first published work? Maybe not comics, just in general, like you decided to become a writer. Like where, where did you get your first professional experience? My first, I'll call it semi-professional because they didn't pay me. I did an interview with Mike Nesmith of the Monkees. Whoa, I love the Monkees. Yeah. Oh, me That's too. Awesome. Also 1966, one of the greatest years in pop culture history. Yeah. So I met him in, in Carmel by the sea, California, where he and his wife lived at the time, interviewed him and wrote it up for a magazine called Bay Area Music Magazine, abbreviated as BAM. And they ran it with a photo that I took, but it was, it was a, one of those things that was just kind of barely scraping by and kind of on newspaper format. So they didn't pay for articles unless they had commissioned them. So that was that was my first like name in print on something that I wrote. That's cool. Yeah, I, I will tell you, I got uh, Mickey Dolan's autograph in yes. like 1990. He was making the you know the circuit at county fairs and stuff, you know, with like, oh. the, the greats of 60s rock and roll type thing. And, and so I got to meet him, and I had been watching the reruns and stuff, and I was so excited, and I got that autograph. And then we went on a family road trip. I had the window rolled down at one point, going through the California oh. desert, and. My dad opened his window in the crosswalk, oh, no. just sucked it out, just flew out the window, uh, gone forever. <laughs> the car! Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about then, how did you find yourself breaking into the world of writing comic books? Honestly, my favorite era of comics was the 70s, when all those people like, you know, Neil Adams and Jack Kirby and Barry Smith and Mike Kaluta and Howie Chaikin and all these guys were coming in. In the 80s, I started to kind of drift away from it. I moved. I had a new job. I was managing this bookstore down in La Jolla, California, and I needed an assistant manager. And this woman came in to apply for the job, and she said her name was Angie Voorhees. And turns out her husband was this guy named Jim Lee, who uh, I was unaware of at the time because I had not been really paying attention to Marvel. Wow. Um, so I got to know Jim, got to know Angie, hired her as my assistant manager. She was, she was great. And Jim was, uh, he was living down in Pacific Beach in an apartment where like they had the battery stolen out of their car because everyone in Pacific Beach had the battery stolen out of their car at one point or another. <laughs> and then uh, then the royalties from X-Men number one came in and he bought a million dollar house up in the hills of La Jolla and started uh, sort of Wildstorm. Did Angie keep working for you after that buddy came in? For a while, yeah. Wow. It was called Hunter's Books and it was part of a chain called Books Incorporated that was all across California. But in 93, early 93, I think, or at the end of 92, they decided to close all their Southern California stores. So they closed the stores. I needed work. I had published a short story, a science fiction short story in an anthology from Bantam Books, and Jim had read it. And he needed a writer to write some Wildcats, the backs of Wildcats trading cards for the top set that they did at Wildstorm before, you know, it was it was Aegis Entertainment, then it wasn't Wildstorm. Right, yeah. Homage Studios and Aegis Entertainment. And... He asked me if I wanted to do it, and I said, sure. And for writing the backs of 100 cards, I got paid more than a month of managing a bookstore. <laughs> and then, uh, then John Nee asked me if I wanted to stay on, and I did, and became a, the 12th full-time employee at Wildstorm. That is amazing that you, you break into comics 
through his wife. Like that, <laughs> that, that is a story. So not quite Wildstorm yet, but this is like, you know, Image has launched and it's a big deal, right? Like this is, everybody's excited, the fervor about that. So how did you, having a background in comics, how did you observe the industry? You were coming from being a fan and a reader, but now you're entering it as a professional. What was your take looking behind the scenes and looking at the kind of attention Jim was getting and Wilson, everybody else at that point? And everybody, yeah. And Mark Silvestri was still in the studio at the time with Top Cow. So they were, they were combined still. It was was uh eye-opening the kind of crowds that they were getting when especially when the image founders would all get together and do an event was insane one of the first things they had me doing was answering fan mail we tried to get everybody who wrote in pre-email days everybody who wrote in got at least a postcard back and i wrote the postcards and then jim signed them so i wrote them as if they were from jim and we mailed out just stacks and stacks because the letters were coming in by the thousands. So in that way, I kind of got a feel for the intensity of the fandom at that time. And then going on tour with the guys and going out to signings and stuff. They were rock stars. Yeah. So did he pretty much bring the whole crew since you were such a small group, like uh, to all the events, all the conventions you guys were there? Some of them, especially if it was like a, a cool location. We did a we did a POG convention in Hawaii. <laughs> Can't get more nineties than that. Exactly. Probably 30 of us went and Jim was like, well, you know, we'll do this, but only if you guys pay us enough to bring over this whole crew. Cause we had launched Wildstorm Pogs and they were desperate enough to have Jim and everybody. So, so we all went to Hawaii. So just so you know, I literally have my Pogs right here with oh, me awesome. and I have my Wildstorm Pogs. So there, there's nice. Barton right there, you know, so uh, <laughs> I got them close at hand at all times. So that is wild. And um, <laughs> out in the shed in a box, but uh, <laughs> I've still got them and I've got dozens of sets of trading cards. Yeah. I mean, definitely that was a big deal. You know, I know that originally it was going through tops, but then you guys eventually created your own trading card company, right? Yep. So that's wild. So obviously, you know, you start out answering, you know, the fan mail and you get your gauge in the temperature there, but what other hats were you wearing in the office? Cause it sounds like you might've been kind of the all purpose guy. Let Jeff do it. Jeff, can you handle this? It's, it was a startup and that's kind of the attitude of startups. Everyone does whatever is needed to pitch in and get it, get it done. So I was running club homage, the fan club writing and designing the newsletter for that, editing letters pages out of the part of the same process of the fan mail. Let me ask about this. So when you were at a convention, for example, what types of things were you involved in at the convention? Did you just get to take it in or were you manning the booth? Were you doing crowd control for Jim? Like what kind of things were you in charge of at a, at a convention? At setting? a convention, I was staffing the booth, giving away whatever there was to give away. And, you know, like you said, doing some crowd control. You're the end of the line. Don't let anyone get behind you. At a certain point, I'll stand behind you to make sure that, that no one else comes in. Okay. Jim's great about, about doing lines. So when it, he could see that he was running out of time, he would get up from his chair and walk the line, signing people's stuff, which made it you know 10 times quicker. They didn't get as much interaction, but they got their stuff signed. And I'm sure people, you know, have seen Jim Lee because he was in videos. He was doing interviews all over the place. So he, in the world of comics, you know, and in the in the pop culture, he was certainly getting his face out there. Is he just as cool and smooth and collected as he seems on video? Like, is he always just kind of a, a mellow guy behind the scenes? He can be intense when he really wants to get something done. But for the most part, yeah, he's... He's that guy. He, you know, he knows what he wants. He knows how to how to go about getting it. He put people in charge of different aspects so we didn't have to worry about him. Like John Nee was the president, and he kind of ran the infrastructure stuff. 
And eventually I became the VP of marketing and I ran, you know, the interactions with Wizard and, and the other magazines and and the, the websites as they started to come along. Yeah, man, that's what I wanted to get into now, because I know like that that's a very important thing, especially for a company like Wildstorm and just image in general was that access to the uh, the market there and, and putting the, the image of the company out there, putting the news stories out there. So we recently, uh, at the time your interview comes out, we will have covered the uh, Wizard Jim Lee tribute special. Okay, oh, so, so I've got it right down here. Yeah, so you got a copy yep, too. I got right. it. I even have a Brazilian edition of Wizard wow. where they used that same cover, oh, but it was nice. just for a regular issue of the magazine. So the huh. question I have about that is obviously it's, you know, from the beginning of Wizard, Garab and Jim were very chummy. They were very friendly and throughout the life of the magazine, you know, Garab eventually had falling out with Todd and people like that, but he and Jim always seemed to have a connection. So how would you describe in general Wildstorm's relationship with Wizard magazine, maybe in comparison to other outlets? It was up and down. You know, Jim would get mad at Wizard because they covered somebody else better than they covered us. So they didn't they didn't promote something that we want really want to promote it. And he'd say, Okay, pull the advertising. We're not gonna advertise with them this month. And that's a lot of money for them. Yeah. So the next month we'd get more coverage, we'd start advertising. <laughs> so yeah, he and he and Garib did have their clashes, but for the most part they got along and and I got along with Garib and Pat and all those guys. Yeah, that, that's what I was curious about because it did seem like, you know, there there was a lot of like, hey, I like you, but you know, let's help each well, other was, out here. There was always some horse trading going on. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, what about as far as like feeding the news stories to Wizard? You know, one of the big things that happened back in the day was Gen X which eventually became Gen 13, was promoted a year before it actually came out as Gen X. I actually have a full collection of like all the ads for Gen X <laughs> framed in my room because it was just like wow. the anticipation, right? Yeah. So what do you recall, for example, about something like that where you you would give the information out to Wizard and they report it and then it never happens, you know? Then they get a little testy in the pages because they, they kind of picked on you guys. Yeah, they would, they would give us a hard time about stuff like that and, and um, wet works which also took a while to come along yeah they got a, um, it got a cover and then yeah we yeah. had, had yeah. to wait but they understood you know because i'm sure they were having the same issues on their end probably not announcing issues a year in advance but but stories that you are anticipating and they fall through and you have to read yeah. cover at the last minute that's the magazine business was um, there a particular feature or like a cover negotiation or like special inserts that went in something that you recall like oh i remember when we had to deal with wizard on this particular project does anything come to mind on that there are a few of them there was that the special where they had to come out and take pictures all around the studio and have you know pretty full access they got to watch everything going on and and we didn't shut any doors on them and i did the same thing there i went out to wizard and got to run around their place and see how they did everything and meet everybody so let's stop there real quick how would you describe the wizard offices compared to the homage studios of the Wildstorm headquarters they were very similar in terms of kind of the attitude and the spirit and even the the toys that you saw around because because all those guys had their toys just like you and i i'm sure have our <laughs> toys and you, know, if you can see the, the wonder woman's over there oh nice yeah well, are those all statues those are my wife she's uh She's a big Wonder Woman fan. But oh, that's great. Got, yeah, uh, speaking of which, I remember, so I, I got this video oh. from one of our listeners, the Hero uh. Illustrated, doing an interview with Jim at his office. And in the background, you could see like He-Man figures on the shelf and like old Marvel figures. And it was, I was like, that's hilarious. Like, that's just wow. his office. <laughs> I had forgotten about that. I, I've seen that, but that's been a long time. 
so yeah it was you know they were young people they were making some money and and spending some money and we were making some money and spending money and our office after we moved to la jolla from mira mesa area i guess we had a crazy office which you can see in that in that wizard special the, the architect who designed it was completely nuts <laughs> there are all these weird angles and pointy countertops if you were running down the hall and you ran into that thing, you could gouge yourself. Oh, yeah. When you walk in the front door, there's a, a space that's just black, no light. And there's a black wall in front of you. And then another one over here and another one over here. And you just have to kind of wind your way into it to get to the front desk. Well, that, so, for example, like when I was a kid, I visited, you know, the Extreme Studios in Anaheim. So I got a tour with my Boy Scout group and we all went through there. Okay. Rob was not there, but Rob was known to like really spend his money on like, oh, I'm going to build like full costumes of my characters and like, a, you know, a full a jet, you know, for my young blood characters to be on display at conventions and stuff. Did Jim have anything like that custom made for the office to represent, you know, Wildcats or anybody like that? Was there anything not, that indulgent? Not that kind of thing. We had art on the walls, some of his early X-Men art and some of the early Wildcats are enlarged, huge, covering a whole wall. But he wasn't really into spending that kind of money on giant props. Yeah. So in the early days that you were there, what were the biggest books that you guys were putting out? What do you remember, like, whether it was reading the fan mail? I mean, obviously, at first it was just Wildcats, but it started okay. to grow into Deathblow and all these other, you know. So was there one that you remember really going over big with the fans? Gen 13 from the start. Um, now, was, was that the most popular, like, from its launch, just through the life of the company? Did that stay consistently the most popular title you guys put out? I think so. I would probably say that. I didn't always see the sales figures, but in terms of fan response... That was, you know, it, it never had a, a real downturn, in the, at least in the early days. Then we changed creative teams a few times. You know, I got to edit it when Adam Warren was doing it, and that was so much fun. It was a great run. Yeah, he, he has a great style to him, for sure. Yeah. And you got to write a few issues as well. I got to, I got to write the, I scripted the second issue of the first miniseries. I wrote a Gen 13 bootleg. I finished the Fairchild trilogy that Scott Lobdell started and bailed on. <laughs> he kind of had a habit of doing, and I wrote two Gen 13 novels. One of which I just got for my birthday recently from a friend oh, of mine. Cool. Yeah. So, I mean, I was, again, I was chasing that for a year. I was so excited. He showed that to me. He's like, he worked at a library. So he's like, I have to push this out of the system and then I can give it to you. <laughs> you know, I was just like, yes, because Gen 13 was everything for me. Like, I, I will tell you, I didn't read any image titles growing up. I didn't read Spawn. I didn't read Wildcats. I definitely wasn't into Youngblood or anything. And so I was just waiting, like, give me a title I'm going to enjoy. And then even the miniseries was too much like not that I don't like Jim's art but it was too much Jim Lee for me and when the ongoing series started with there was all J. Scott Campbell art 100% I was just like oh I'm hooked and I just you know bought bought and bought and it seemed like like in addition obviously to the fans being so excited that there's the other professionals with the bootleg series and you know like Adam Hughes doing ordinary heroes and things like that like there were a lot of people in the industry that just wanted to do their interpretation I Billy Tucci used free fall in an issue of his atomic angels you know right. just randomly as you know little like hey jim what do you say you know that type of thing so what do you recall about those types of things going on with people like coming in to, to take over those characters everybody wanted to get their hands on them that's part of why we did bootleg so we could have all the different creators give them a shot at it they were huge part of it was because they people knew that those issues would sell and they'd get royalties for them <laughs> my royalty check for the scripting that second issue was pretty nice i can tell I you that. 
<laughs> especially because that was considered i remember wizard kept that in their top 10 list forever because it was underprinted. they mm -hmm. said and so that like that became like the huge collectible the second issue was the one to find so look at you <laughs> writing a collectible yeah uh, when you were writing those characters was there any particular influence for you in gen 13 saying like oh you know like this reminds me of you know this group from a tv show i liked and i kind of infused that because you have a lot of history obviously with writing the angel novel series and all of that like take existing ip and then what can you do with these characters and still keep it in the, in the universe keep it in line with what's been established so do you have a philosophy behind that with that first issue of gen 13 that i wrote i didn't have much to go on right <laughs> one that brandon scripted and then brandon had somewhere else he had to be that week and the book had to go to the printer so i scripted it after that i started to get the feel for who the characters were and what they were all about and just tried to match that usually when i'm writing existing characters particularly if they have a, a tv show like angel or csi or or narcos or something i if i can hear the actor's voice in my head who plays that character as i'm writing got it down and if I can't, then I know I need to tweak it and work on it until I do. It's a little different with comics because you don't hear that voice, although eventually we did with Gen 13, but it's the same approach. You're just not, you're not hearing a voice, but you know, you've read the books, you know, kind of how they, the patterns of speech and what they might say. Okay. And, and what's interesting is, so I know like in interviews at Wizard, for example, like J. Scott Campbell, and he and Brandon Choi would say like, well, you know, we kind of like keep the teen magazines around so we can see what's hip, what's current. We can kind of check the language and stuff like that. Did you have to reference anything? Did you feel like, did you have a teenager in the house? Like where, where did you pull any I had, uh, dialogue from? I had a teenager in the house. Okay. Um, and then as she got older, I had I had a son who was eight years younger than her. A big gap between those two. Mm -hmm. So she was a teenager, and then she got older, and then he became a teenager. He, David, is now working at IDW Publishing as oh, an editor. Cool, so keeping it in the family. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I do have a question too, because we recently were reporting on an issue of Wizard where they were previewing the, the unproduced Gen 13 video game that was supposed to come out in like 1997. Were you involved at all in like, you know, the story, like scripting? Because they said like it was going to be tied into a year's worth of storylines and it would be, you know, the background story. None of that. Huh? I wasn't involved in that at all. Okay. I was involved with the animated feature somewhat. Okay. Do you remember the frustration of all of that? Like, I'm sure through Jim's eyes, he's like, why is this not coming out? Why are they not getting this done? Why are they not going to release it? Like, what do you remember about the, the long production process of that film? It was long because Kevin Altieri was doing everything. Um, he was storyboarding it. He was directing it. He was the guy. And he was essentially adapting that first miniseries, but taking obviously taking some liberties. And we were fine with that. But we were funding the whole thing, so we couldn't afford to have a whole studio of writers going or anything. So we had Kevin, and Kevin had a, a reputation. He worked on Batman the Animated Series and Mask of the Phantasm, and you know he was a, a top-notch animator. So we let him do his thing, and then we had it animated, and then we sold it to Disney, and Disney paid a million dollars for it and put it on the shelf. And nothing we could do would shake it off the shelf. Um, we, we never... At least I never, I don't know if Jim and John ever had any more specific concrete kind of explanation from them, but I never heard it if they did. Just they decided that eh, we don't want to put this out. Maybe it just didn't feel like a Disney cartoon to them. And 
because it was animated, they were afraid it would get confused with their, their animation output. But Paramount put it out internationally, and that's why there's bootlegs around. Right. How did you feel ultimately <laughs> by, about the end product that Kevin put together? It was fun. It was its own thing. Yeah. We had a big um, premiere party with some of the actors and actresses. and Oh, that's neat. That was a blast. We got to meet everybody. Um, so Flea was there, Mark Hamill. No, Flea and, Flea and Hamill didn't show up. Oh, okay. Everybody else, though. That's good. <laughs> women came. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, so, and I will say uh, the fun behind-the-scenes story with that. So one of the wizard staffers that we've had on in the past to interview, when he left the, the company, he ended up with the preview videotape that you guys or somebody sent to Wizards so they could watch the movie oh. so that they could, you know, report on it. And he he's like, I didn't need to steal it, but I stole it. He's like, <laughs> and he has it in his collection. He's like, it's yours when I find it. I'm just like, oh, I'm waiting for that to, to come into our archives here. So it's just like, <laughs> I remember waiting, waiting, waiting. And then, yeah, we never saw it until YouTube many years later or the convention bootlegs. Yeah. Yeah. I have a, a VHS copy that has the timestamp on it. Oh, nice. One of the early, early ones. And then I think I have a, a straight VHS that doesn't have all that that stuff on it. Oh, that's so cool. Do you get a credit there somewhere as a story consultant or anything? I, I don't think I have a credit on the film, but I did get an IMDB credit out of it. Nice. Surprised me because I didn't think I would if I didn't have a credit on screen. Geeks, it's time to take a break to tell you about our sponsor for this episode, Manscaped. Yes, Manscaped offering the best in men's below-the-waist grooming with their precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Psst, that means your balls. You know, it's 2023, and that means it's time for you to reboot your personal hygiene routine by using this exclusive offer from Manscaped just for our listeners of the Wizards Podcast Guide to Comics. You'll get 20% off and free international shipping. That means you in Canada also. <laughs> um, by using this promo code WIZARDS20 at checkout. When you're shopping for great Manscaped products, like the Performance Package 4.0. Yes, like you said, Michael, it's a new year that'll be full of new experiences as you take your grooming game to the next level with Manscaped's innovative tools like the Weed Whacker Ear and Nose Hair Trimmer. So, Michael, I gifted my dad the Weed Whacker for Christmas, <laughs> and he is now singing its praises, okay? He had a run-of-the-mill nose hair trimmer he said he liked, you know, he'd been using it for years. But now, because of the Weed Whacker and the fact that it's waterproof, it features Manscaped's proprietary skin-safe technology. He's enjoying the comfort of reduced uh, nicks and snags and tugs, and when he's cleaning up, you know, the old schnoz there. You're welcome, man. <laughs> but Michael, how has Manscaped's Performance Package 4.0 been improving your lifestyle? So in addition to using the Weed Whacker, which I used this morning, funny enough, uh, as you just mentioned, which I love and it's fantastic. I've used several different nose hair things. And they always nick and pull and it's, just a, it's a pain. Um, I'm continuing to use the Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer on my head, which really it's unbelievable. It works fantastic. Keeps my head super smooth thanks to the advanced skin-safe technology. Plus, the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant and Crop Reviver Toner are a nice way to stay fresh during my daily activities. And you know what? Having that shed travel bag to hold everything is fantastic. I have a nice, easy place to put all my stuff so my wife's not complaining that it's all over the counter and everything else in our bathroom. So 
Adam, what about you? How has Manscaped been helping your life? Well, see, my family gifted me tons of Manscaped products for Christmas. Like, I got the Ultra Premium Body Wash, okay, which is infused with aloe vera and sea salt. Keeps my skin fresh and moisturized. Plus, it actually smells great. Uh, It's got this woodsy scent it's bergamot and lavender and i have no idea what bergamot is but it's working for me but it's okay? delightful yeah <laughs> i'm also digging uh they have the two-in-one shampoo and conditioner which has coconut water green tea aloe turmeric and sage and it's, it's- turmeric for oh, you. turmeric. See, again, turmeric. I don't know these things. I'm, I'm not fancy enough to be using you, Manscaped. you got to be a I'm hipster from Brooklyn like me. you got to know. <laughs> but it, but the cool thing about that mixture is it's naturally hydrating. And that's the thing I notice is just my, my skin actually feels good after I use it. It's not all dried out and gross. Uh, plus, their ultra premium deodorant is great, too, because it's all clear. It's aluminum free. And it doesn't leave like marks or odors on your clothes. And most of all, I would say it doesn't enhance the stink. I don't know if you've had that experience, Michael, of deodorants that actually make you smell worse throughout the day. Have you ever had that? I'm just like, yeah, what they, is they say happen? They're like, oh, it's 48 hour protection, but by hour four, it's like radiating yeah. odor. I'm like, and, and yeah, then I go for an antiperspirant instead, and then I just sweat all over. So like, this is like the perfect middle ground, okay? <laughs> you saying the word antiperspirant really makes me laugh. <laughs> I love that your family gifted you stuff using our promo code. That's hilarious. (laughs) I said, now's the time, guys. Get a great deal for your Christmas shopping. (laughs) Absolutely. One of my very close friends, I gifted him the lawnmower 4.0 for Christmas. And I reached out to his wife first. And I said, is it okay if I get this for your husband? And she goes, please do. No (laughs) one needs it more. So I gave it to him for Christmas. And... He's called me up and he's like, dude, this thing is incredible. And my wife is thrilled that she's not looking at a mountain of mess down there. And, I, and my his wife even thanked me too. It's just kind of weird, but it's cool. I like it. So it's time to up your grooming game in 2023. Like 7 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped to take care of their balls with the Performance Package 4.0 that includes the Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, the Weed Whacker Ear and Nose Hair Trimmer, the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant, the Crop Reviver Toner, plus two free gifts, the Performance Boxer Briefs, which I use all the time and I wear them great. They're very, very comfortable. And the Shed Travel Bag to hold your gear. Best of all, you get 20% off your order and free international shipping. Manscaped, the best for men's grooming. Now back to the show. I got to ask one more question, okay. which is Sarah, who was the editor of Gen 13, ends up on MTV at one point. She's on the real world. The real world. So what was that experience like? Because I remember watching the footage on the show and she's, she would actually be working, you know, from their house in Florida, right? They were down in Miami. So was that like during that whole period of filming, she was just like, yep, still getting the books. Do you know like how that was working out? No, she was not doing a whole lot of work. But, okay. But- she was doing a little bit, but uh, other people had to pick up some of the slack. Okay. <laughs> now, did she stay as long as you at the company or did she move on after that? Or No, she didn't. I don't think she stayed very long after she came back from the real world. She had become a celebrity. 
That's yeah. right. You get the buzz. <laughs> now, the, the big news in Wizard at this time was obviously the Heroes Reborn side of things. Like, And nobody anticipated that. Jim and Rob coming back to Marvel, bringing some other talent along with them. And wow, Marvel's getting a facelift. What do you recall about that initial, like, you get the announcement where Jim's like, by the way, guys, we're going to start producing books for Marvel now. I was kind of stunned. Pretty shortly thereafter, I flew out to Marvel, out to New York with Jim and John. And we met with the Marvel guys and worked out all the details of how we were going to promote it and publicize it. You know, there, there was a lot of stuff to go along with that. And that was the only time I ever went to Marvel on business. And it was weird because that was also the time when Marvel stock was like a dollar a share. Yeah. And I wish now that I had bought a whole bunch of it, but I didn't. <laughs> But walking through the Marvel offices, there were all these empty cubicles and chairs up on desks. And, and I was like, man, is this company going to survive? They really do need our help. Obviously, they survived and they're doing quite well now. Yeah, they managed, but certainly the boost uh, that you guys provided uh, made a, a huge difference. Now, one thing I have to ask is that, you know, all that's going on, right? You guys are putting out Fantastic Four and you guys are, are doing Iron Man, you know, which is a, there's your Scott Lobdell again. He actually did a pretty good job on that, I felt. I enjoyed that book. But then as as that is kind of winding down, you know, Rob ends up out of the picture and then you guys take over the full load of the Heroes Reborn stuff till, till the end of that. And in this process, Process. So on his Observations podcast, Rob Liefeld claims that Jim Lee was being courted to run Marvel Comics out of the La Jolla offices in the late 90s, but the deal never happened. That the top bigwigs from you know Marvel, everybody flew out, they're having meetings, all the back and forth. Would you care to comment on how close that was to actually coming to fruition? Do you remember that statement that, hey, we're going to run Marvel at no, some point? That never came up. If the guys from Marvel came out, they didn't come to the offices. Okay. Or if they came to the offices, it was at night or on the weekends or something. If those negotiations were going on, they were kept very hush-hush. Okay. I never heard that in the studio. So you never had any indication that after Heroes Reborn, you guys would continue on? Now, did you get to have any input like to help out with, again, like promoting Heroes Reborn or even like helping out on stories when somebody was falling behind or anything like that? Not on those. Um, they were paying very, very well. The freelance rates were, were terrific. And everybody who got those gigs kept those gigs <laughs> as long as they could. So my involvement in that was strictly on the on the PR side. Did you have any concern when that was happening? Like, like, did it ever feel like, well, Wildstorm might be taking a back seat? Were you guys kind of maybe slowing down in sales or anything in addition to, you know, the time that was being spent at Heroes Reborn? My sense was that it was only going to help us as well as Marvel mm -hmm. because of the attention that it was getting. People who read Marvel books done by us but hadn't tried us would think, oh, hey, they do good stuff. Maybe we should check out their books. So I thought it was win-win for us. Now, do you have like a Wildstorm book that was a big you know, title for you that you enjoyed the most that you felt was maybe the strongest of the output of in any period or overall? Different ones at different times. I thought Stormwatch was really good for a while. And I, I really liked the Stormwatch 25 event that we did, which for people who don't know it around Stormwatch, nine or 10, I think. And we decided, okay, we'll put out Stormwatch 25 next and it takes place in the future. And then the issues from now until then will tell the story of what happened to build up to that future. And to my knowledge, no one had ever done that before. Um, it was a cool event. I got to promote that. Then somehow 
I probably shouldn't say how <laughs> in a public forum. <laughs> another studio found out we were doing that, even though the studios weren't supposed to see one another's solicitations and did their own half-fast version of it with no plan and they never made it match up or anything. But we we filled in all the steps issue by issue and it, and it worked out great. So you guys actually built up to the 25 as planned. As, yeah. as, that's yeah. awesome. Wow. Yeah. And then I wrote 26 and 27, which was fun. I introduced a brand new team because I was told the regular writer was H.K. Proger. It wasn't his real name. It's like, I'm not sure how he oh, okay. pronounced it. <laughs> it was Bill Kaplan, the editor, writing under a different name. But he had fallen behind. The artist had fallen behind. Someone was behind. And so they needed to fill in issues so the regular team could get back up to speed. And so the fill in issues were supposed to involve characters who didn't basically didn't matter. They were disposable. They wouldn't be continuing characters. So I could just make them up and then they'd be there for two issues. And then the regular team would take over with the regular Stormwatch team. But Swift and Flint were part of that team and they ended up staying in Stormwatch and becoming part of the authority. And they're still out there somewhere. They weren't entirely disposable. Yeah. Speaking of which, though, so I was going to say, if Heroes Reborn didn't shake you, didn't cause any concern, Jim Lee selling Wildstorm to DC Comics in 1998, so just shortly after that, that transition must have been jarring for you. So when you heard that we're selling to DC, what was your reaction? I was stoked. Really? Okay. I, had been a, I had been more of a DC guy than a Marvel guy. There were some Marvel titles that I loved some creators who mostly worked for Marvel that I loved. And I knew the Marvel guys, but I also knew the DC guys. And I had, you know, again, because of Marvel's financial situation, um, I had a lot more faith in DC and in Paul Levitz, who was running DC, than I did in, in whoever was running Marvel at that time, like the Bob Harris era. And there had been some upheaval at the top. So I was, I was comfortable with that. I thought, you know, that as long as they let us keep doing what we're doing, pay us maybe a little better than we were getting paid, which they did. Oh, wow. I'm fine with it. They made me a senior editor because they already had a marketing team that was adequate to, to do Wildstorm and DC. So then I got to become an editor and work with Alan Moore and done some of the ABC books and worked with some of our regular guys and got to bring in some new guys and create some new titles. That was It was a fun era for me. Because the way people look at it now, right, is, oh, they wanted Jim Lee, they wanted Jim to be working for them, and slowly all the Wildstorm stuff's being put on a shelf. Some of it's being integrated, but really that's, you know, it's kind of in the vault. Who knows if we'll ever see anything again. So what was your observation as that was occurring? I was out of it before most of that took place. Okay. That was out in 2002. Um, I stayed for four years. It was a very different corporate structure because they were part of Warner Brothers. And so you had meetings after meetings. And, you know, we were this wild, crazy, ragtag bunch of kids putting out comics. And then we had to be all, all corporate and structured, <laughs> have an HR department and all that stuff. And so that was that was weird. But I had full access to the Warner lot, which was fun, and discounts at the Warner stores when they existed. Oh, I loved fun. those studio stores. So there were there were benefits. I, I got a nice bonus that, that continued over the four years in addition to the bump and pay, which was nice. So I was pretty happy, but the bureaucracy was getting to me by the time the four years were up. It was just such a different kind of environment. And IDW came along and offered me the editor-in-chief and they were again a kind of a startup and it was sort of that same that same startup mentality and so i jumped at that 
Yeah, I mean that it's amazing. IDW, it's like IDW and Boom feel like you know the 21st century imprints that have lasted. You know, like so there's always those just a few that hang on. So that's wonderful. You were there at the beginning. How did your relationship with Jim evolve over the years? Like, are you still friendly to this day? Is that still yeah. uh yeah? I mean, we don't we don't talk a lot unless we're at a con together. But yeah, we're still friendly. So friendly with with John and everybody. There was that that Wildstorm panel that. I missed at Comic Con, but I have to watch oh, the yeah. video. But I, I would have been on that panel if I'd if I'd been at Comic Con. And speaking of which, so obviously, you know, you're a part of the image story, right? Like, but looking back, are you surprised at all that it has managed to survive beyond, you know, because kind of the founding members, you know, Jim's at DC now, you know, and everybody's kind of doing their own thing, eventually fracturing until you just got kind of like Eric and, and Todd hanging on. Did you see in the image spirit, in your knowledge of the other founders and all that in the structure of what it was, something that could last? Or did, did you maybe at the time think, well, it's based on however long they can milk their success at Marvel? I didn't think that it was all going to last. I mean, if, if you would ask me then if I thought Eric would still be doing Savage Dragon now, <laughs> I would have said probably not. So I'm I'm really impressed with his uh, determination and, and his drive to just tell stories with that character and, and keep doing it. But I'm not surprised that Jim did the DC thing because unlike Eric, Jim was always looking for the next thing. He loved doing Wildcats, but he wanted to do the next thing and, and that was death blow and then he wanted to do the next thing and that was divine right and then he wanted to do the next thing and um, eventually that became running the biggest comic book company in the country anyway yeah that ain't bad yeah um and i i do have to ask you like because we haven't really talked too much about him but did you have much interaction with todd mcfarland over the years is there a todd story like that that sticks out to you i didn't have a lot with todd i drove him and maybe Eric to the airport once. And that was probably the, the longest interaction I had one-on-one -on -one or one-on-one -on -one uh -huh. with, with him. There was a story going around that I wasn't present for that they were in a meeting with someone that the founders were in a meeting with some fairly important person in the business. And most of them were kind of sitting around the table talking to this person, whoever, I don't remember who it was, but Todd was over in the corner talking to a potted plant <laughs> This is like Clint Eastwood talking to the chair. To the chair. Yeah. I assume it's true because it sounds very Todd-like, but, but I wasn't there to witness it myself. The question is, was he wearing a shirt? Because his convention appearances so famously often not wearing a shirt. Yes. <laughs> I don't know who was wearing underwear. <laughs> Let me ask you this, then, as we close out, you know, obviously we are a Wizard Magazine-focused podcast, and as we said at the top, literally all the way along, you know, Jim at DC, everything, Wizard is, you know, keeping putting out the covers, doing a, you know, a Millennium Edition collected Jim Lee book, hardcover, all this different stuff. So what was your perception of Wizard Magazine, its relevance, or, you know, what it became as the years went on, you know, as it, as you're kind of, you know, got IDW going on, I'm sure you're a touch now with wizard you know they want to talk to this new group that's publishing these awesome books that people are getting excited about so what how did your interactions with wizard and your perception change over the years if at all initially wizard was number one it was our biggest outlet to get news out when i wrote press releases on the computer and printed them out and put them in an envelope and mailed them with prints of the artwork because I couldn't electronically transmit it. You know, Wizard was the first one I mailed and the first people I talked to on the phone. And they were by far our biggest constituency in that way. The other magazines came along, Hero and Combo and Fan and everything else. And I tried to 
divvy up our attention among them. I actually wrote a column for fan for many issues. Oh. But Wizard had the readership of the audience that we wanted and the audience that was particularly interested in us. So so Wizard was always my priority as, as a marketing guy. And that was throughout the whole time I was there. It was always Wizard. So uh, as you look back on this period, looking at the 90s, looking at the 2000s, just like looking at you know all, all the decades that you've experienced the industry, which would you say was like, you know, the, the glory days, I guess is what I would say. Like, is, is it, you know, irrefutably the 90s? Like that was just oh, yeah. the peak of it all? Yeah, it was absolutely the, the early 90s. The books were just selling like crazy. Fan reaction was huge. Um, anything that we put in Wizard would immediately get response. It was an era unto itself. It probably will never happen again in, in quite that way. Yeah, I mean, do you have a quintessential 90s story when you come to mind where you're just like, it could only have happened then? Like, you know, like, for example, like Wizard, you know, had a win Jim Lee's art table contest or, you know, and then, you know, the Wizard guys stealing Jim's robe at conventions and all this different stuff. Like they were, they were always, you know, having some fun with him. But like, is there something just that either whether it was a convention or just in the offices or a connection that was made with a celebrity or something where you're just like, this was like the peak of it all? Beyond the art table which Jim made a point of doing a lot of, I mean, he always kind of sketched on it, but, but for that particular purpose, he did a ton of extra art on it. And if I remember correctly, it went to Puerto Rico. I think that the winner oh. was in Puerto Rico, which is pretty funny. And we did another contest where we... Oh, is when, I, when Jim leaves pants? Wasn't when that... Jim leaves pants. There, <laughs> there was one where we brought someone out to the studio for a couple of days. Oh, yeah. I don't remember how she won that, but she did. And she and her boyfriend came out, I think. And she got her tongue pierced while she was in La Jolla. Wow. And she knew that her mother was going to be furious <laughs> and she was going to blame it on us. It was but that I, J. Scott Campbell guy. He yeah, did it. That influence. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, Jeff, this has been so much fun. I mean, what a life you've lived, right? What an experience that you've had. Uh, just uh, all, all the different places that life has taken you. And again, I just, I want to go manage a bookstore now because you never know who's going to never. <laughs> No, it was great. And I enjoyed the vast majority of the minutes. I, I can't say every minute, but, but most of them. And looking back on it, it was just fun times. Yeah. Well, let, and let's find out what are you doing these days? What are your latest projects? I'm sure you got something in the hopper. I'm mostly writing novels. In the last 18 months, I've written six novels and a novella. Woo. I wrote a, a Western novel series that came out from Wolfpack Publishing, the Cody Kavanaugh series. And then I just today, this morning, turned in the third book of a, a police procedural mystery series for them called the uh, Major Crime Squad Phoenix, set here in the Phoenix area. Oh, nice. Be coming out September, October, November. I wrote this Tarzan book. Oh, wow. Tarzan in the Forest of Stone, which brings Tarzan to Arizona and fits into the continuity created by Edgar Rice Burroughs. That is amazing. Right after Tarzan and the Lion Man. That is awesome. It feels like, we, you know, we just talked to Ron Mars the other oh, day, and he, ob obviously also a huge Tarzan fan. It just feels yeah. like everybody wants to take their stab with Tarzan at some point. If someone gives you the opportunity to write Tarzan, you take it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that is wonderful. And where could people find you online if they want to get connected? JeffMarriott.com. Go to the contact page and there's a link tree and it's got all my social media stuff. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, or they can follow you and, and find me there. That's Just right. We'll point you in the right direction. <laughs> Thanks for having me on, man. I appreciate yeah. it.
And that does it for our interview with Jeff Marriott. Really want to thank Jeff for those awesome stories and his perspective on this time in comics that we all love so much. Of course, uh, this is in conjunction with our Jim Lee tribute event, which was a Zoom event we did last year. Got together with a couple of listeners and past guests and had them on to share their love of Jim Lee's output over the years. And so that is going to be coming out this Wednesday on our main feed. So we hope that you will connect with us there. It also will have a YouTube version, so you can go over to Wizards Comics on YouTube and see the whole discussion there as well. So, again, we want to thank you for listening to this edition of The Wizard Files, but did you know that there is an unedited version of this conversation with a few more details sprinkled in on our Patreon? That's right, patreon.com forward slash wizardscomics where for just $5 a month you get advanced and unedited episodes of the podcast. In fact, our patrons got this several months back after we had recorded it. So they've known about these stories for a lot longer. And now you can have that opportunity as well because you also get scans of the issues to read along with. We will read your name on the episodes as they come out. There are so many perks of being a patron in addition to just joining a fantastic community of like-minded folks who love those 90s comics and the fun brought to you by Wizard Magazine. So something to keep in touch with and keep in mind if you want to help contribute to the continued growth of the podcast. Of course, you can find us on Twitter at Wizards Comics, on Instagram at Wizards underscore comics, and we look forward to bringing you more excitement to come. But until next time, we're closing the files. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.